0: They basically sat me down and said I was a terrible leader, I was a cancer, I was everything wow. I shouldn't be as a, as a quarterback.
1: Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome in to another episode of Half Forgotten History, Season 4. And today's guest is a very special guest. We worked together for many, many years at ESPN. Longtime quarterback in the NFL, Trent Dilfer. People know what he did, but they don't know his story from a cocky, arrogant first round pick to a humbled veteran who found a way to win a Super Bowl and then went through amazing tragedy to find real purpose in his life post-football career. Uh, He's one of the most interesting people I've ever had the chance to hang out with, and he's open and honest about everything that's happened in his life. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with my friend Trent Dilfer. So one of the fun things about doing this pod is I get to reconnect with a lot of people who I've spent a lot of time with, and and Trent, you certainly qualify. Um, You know, it's funny. Maybe we should have known that your NFL career was going to be very much of a lightning rod and controversial because people forget that you came into the league as the complete center of the who in the hell is Mel Kuyper Jr. debate anyway in the 1994 draft. For those that don't remember... Uh, The Colts decided to pass on Trent Dilfer with the fifth overall pick and took Trev Alberts, and Mel Kuyper absolutely ripped them a new you-know-what. Bill Tobin, who was then the GM, sat down with Chris Mortensen and said, who in the hell is Mel Kuyper Jr. anyway? That was our big
0: introduction to Trent Dilfer. Yeah, Interesting story. I think I've told you this, and I I think I've said this a couple times publicly. I didn't know any better, right? You're you're trusting your agent at that part of your life. Uh, for whatever reason, my agent at the time really felt that the Colts was the worst place that we could go.
1: And well, a lot of people felt that way. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's not the Colts we know now. So right. I was projected to possibly go one to Cincinnati, but they didn't want to spend the money on the quarterback, so they were probably going to go Big Daddy Wilkerson. And, and then I think the Colts had two. We knew they were going to take Marshall Falk, if I'm correct. And then Home the run. Redskins yep. were at three. And the night before the draft, we were pretty sure we are going to go to the Redskins. And then Norv and I, who are great friends, have talked about this a million times. Norv woke up that morning, had a change of heart, went with the He Shuler. So then it was scramble time. Hey, you can't go to the Colts, which in retrospect was dumb because I could have played with Marshall Falk. It's one of the greatest players that's ever lived. Uh, But at the time, you got to keep it in perspective, the information you're getting. I I signed off on, okay, I've gotten to know Sam Weish really well. Uh, Bucks visited Tampa, felt comfortable with that situation, felt like they were going to change ownership and good things were going to happen. So I was fine going six to Tampa. Uh, But what nobody knows is we told the Colts, do not draft me at five because i will sit out the whole year i back then you could make a ton of money in memorabilia so i had plenty of money uh and i was just going to sit out and then i was going to be the first pick to the carolina panthers the expansion expansion team the next year year. so we had that leverage so the colts couldn't call our bluff and and it put bill tobin in a very difficult situation obviously mel kuyper didn't know the backstory so uh, but yeah, every year when I see that when you guys start the draft, when ESPN starts the yeah. draft, when you used to do it, I would always giggle when that little, uh, that little clip showed. And I, I'm like, people need to know the backstory here.
1: That's interesting. I, I did not know that. So you were willing to pull an Elway or yeah. an Eli Manning at that point? And I was convinced. In fact, we were
0: in uh, one of your favorite places, Maui. Uh, we had gone and purchased a condo. To show on paper that we were very serious about this, that we were going to, I was married, you know, my wife, Cassandra, we got married in college and uh, we were comfortable just saying, okay, we'll take a year, I'll train, I'll get, you know, finish school up because I was a junior and I'll live in Hawaii and play some golf
1: and work out and go to the Panthers the next year. Well, let me just say, that would have been a great, a great call. <laughs> having, having, having done some of that, that would have been a great call. Real quickly before we move on from that, though. Like, the top in the 94 draft is really interesting, oh, yeah. right? First, first overall pick, Dan Wilkinson, that didn't work out. As you mentioned, Falk went second, Hall of Famer, home run. Heath Shuler third, no good. Willie McGinnis, absolute slam dunk for the Patriots. Trev Alberts to the Colts. Obviously, injury is a big part of that. Didn't work out. He's now the AD at Nebraska. You uh, to the Bucks. Bryant Young to the Niners, who had a very good career. Sam Adams, 8 to Seattle. Not bad. Uh, Cleveland took Antonio Langham. Didn't really do much. And then Arizona took Jameer Miller, the linebacker out of, uh, out of UCLA. So that top 10 was either really good or really bad. And I'm hoping you're putting me in the middle.
0: Like, I hope that I wasn't the really bad. I know I wasn't really good, but don't put me in the really yeah. bad.
1: You're, you're, you're the flux capacitor there. You're, you're the line of demarcation. Perfect. You, you fall on one side of Dread Dilfer or the other side of Dread Dilfer. I will Dilfer. take that, Trey. I will <laughs> take that. So all these years later now, what would you like to say to young 1994 Trent Dilfer who had the hair down to here and had the swagger, the first real stud quarterback to come out of Fresno State? Yes, I get it. Kevin Sweeney had a cup of coffee in the NFL with the Cowboys in the 80s, but you were the first dude to come out of Fresno State. We've seen the Carr brothers come out and Devontae Adams, the wide receiver, a bunch of players come out of Fresno State and have a lot of success. What would today's Trent Dilfer say to 94 Trent Dilfer?
0: Shut up and work. Like, just shut up, listen, go to work, get better each day, don't get caught up in all the other stuff. You know, I was immature. I was mature in life, right? I'm married. I think I right. made good decisions off the field. Uh, I think I did a lot of I, – I, as a man, I was mature. As a player competitor, I was very immature. And I hmm. let a lot of the noise bother me. Uh, I tend to blame others instead of taking responsibility for my own mistakes i didn't work as hard as i should have Now i worked hard in terms of hours but i didn't work hard in terms of efficiency and what was going to make me better uh, yeah. i probably would have played a lot less golf to be honest with you, you want to just take a micro thing you know it was i was a scratch golfer in college i'd played on the high school golf team uh, I get into the NFL, and I can join nice country clubs. We had this offseason, and instead of going out and enjoying 18 holes of golf, I'd play 36 and hit balls and, and grind and to become a plus three. So really cool, you're a plus three, you win a couple golf tournaments, but that's time I could have spent taking better care of my body, eating better, uh, throwing more, working with receivers, doing all the things you see NFL quarterbacks do now. Remember, I grew up in the in the era where you know, your Elway's and Marino still smoked a cigarette at halftime. And their right. off-seasons were playing golf and chilling out and going to functions and nobody threw a lot in the off-season. But, you know, they were already established guys. Uh, I wish I would have grinded it harder and, and really honed my craft. Uh, I've said this publicly. I've told you this before. I, I feel like my big greatest disappointment as a football player is I didn't reach my potential. I was so talented at the time. And I don't mean that like, Oh, I was so good, good and talented are two different things. Uh, But I was Josh Allen. You know what I mean? I was 6'4", You had arm
1: arrogance. You you had
0: arm arrogance. I had arm arrogance. I ran four six five at 245 pounds. I was super strong in the weight room. I was durable. Um, You know, I had all the things. There's a reason why I went number six and could have gone one was I had all the traits. And I didn't make that work. You know, what I mean, I didn't maximize my potential. There's players that had far less physical ability than me that became much better players than me. So that's on me. Uh, so I wish I would just shut up and worked.
1: Well, listen. If if it's any consolation, you are the best non-golfer golfer that I've ever played with. I mean, you know, besides you. being a pro, I have never seen somebody strike the ball. Yeah, you know, I'll give. I'll put Marty Fish in there because oh, that yeah. dude, Marty played... hits
0: it. Oh, Marty hits it better than me. I. When I was playing really well, I would say Marty and I were equal players. He's a much better player than me now. He hits it way better than I do.
1: And he's just—he's so annoying because he yeah. played tennis left-handed and, he and plays he's so good-looking
0: too. You just I mean?
1: because. Oh, but don't don't do that because you know he's going to see this and he's going to probably <laughs> retweet it and say, "Of course, I, like he's that guy." So let's <laughs> let's not go down that road with my good friend Marty Fish. But to be fair, you you did work out a plus three, and you're really good at it. And by the way, you you also are a great guy to play with if you're not as good. Um, and you know, my 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 index is now down to an 8.5, so I'm very happy about that. How's the um, elbow at,
0: by the way? You you dealt uh, with years of elbow yes, pain. Yes.
1: I did and it it finally I you know what I did? I finally took one of those little tennis elbow things that uh-huh. little that little air pouch and that took the took the vibrations out and eventually that got rid of the nineties. but I thought I was going to have to quit. Oh, like, you I were thought I was have to quit There were
0: times I saw you when we were in uh when we were in Monterey that one time you're almost in tears. Yeah. That early yeah. morning it was misty and cold and you're trying to hit a ball yeah. and it look like you're getting uh, stung every time you hit a ball. I thought you were going to walk off the golf course.
1: Well, I'm also marshmallow soft, so that was probably something to do with <laughs> it as well. So so let, let's go through the Tampa experience. When was the lowest point for you? Wh- when did you think, or did you ever get to the point where like, geez, am I just not good enough?
0: Oh, yeah, I, I had a couple of those moments. I would say one was when John Lynch and Hardy Nickerson uh, two dear friends. By the way, and I, I so respect how they did this. They basically sat me down and said I was a terrible leader. I was a cancer. I was everything wow. I shouldn't be as a as a quarterback. Uh, that was my first aha moment. Uh, and then I, I did. I and I and they would both say I, I made a conscious change. Uh, and a, and a, because we did have some success in Tampa. People forget. Yeah. Uh, but I did make a change at that moment. And around the same time, I remember walking off the field after a four-interception game against Green Bay and being pelted by uh, binoculars. So the fans, this is my second year, the fans were so disgusted with how I played, how I carried myself, that they were giving up their $300 pair of $300 binoculars trying to kill me with them. And there was an umbrella protecting me so I wouldn't get hit with them and I had to put my helmet on. And those are two. And then the third one I would say is when my wife and I got booed out of an Outback Steakhouse on Dill Mabry. When they announced our <laughs> name, Table for Two, Dilfer and the entire restaurant stood up and booed us. Uh, to her credit, we went and sat down in the very middle of the restaurant and finished and ate our meal. But uh, those are three, you know, kind of seminal moments of as, as low as you gets in Tampa.
1: Th- that's a little harsh. Right? I mean, can't a man enjoy a blooming onion in peace? I mean, that that seems to be a little strong.
0: It was, it was rough, but, you know, I get it. I, as I look back, I get it because it's more than how you play. I think a fan can forgive you for playing poorly if you still handle yourself like a pro. The problem yeah. that I had the double whammy that I was the worst player in football in 95 and carried myself like a punk, too. You know, there was so much yeah. insecurity. There was so much false bravado uh, that they saw. You know, if people are smart. They see through. They see through it. So they see the terrible play, and they also see the uh, you above team attitude. I guess is how yeah. I would say it. And it was a double whammy. So I actually I don't blame anybody. If I ever met anybody that was in that outback that day, I would laugh at it. I would. I'd say, hey, I probably would have done the same thing. So. I don't hold any bitterness to those experiences. I, I'm old enough now to recognize uh, why I went through them.
1: Well, listen, I, I will say that's one of the things I enjoyed about working with you. And we'll get to that in a minute. Like There was an episode uh, we were taking for NFL primetime, and, and you made a comment. I think Warren Sapp uh, made commented on Twitter, and you actually said, he's right, I was a terrible teammate and I needed to be better. I always respected the fact that you never shied away from any of that mm-hmm. when we worked together. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll get to that. That's a whole separate discussion we'll have in a little bit. But I want, I want to stick to the football playing part here for a moment. When did they say to you and how did they say to you, look, we tried, this isn't going to work, we're going to move on in Tampa? So 97
0: was great. So I I always talk about my career arc in Tampa. Started at the bottom, and then it got pretty high. I mean, Pro Bowls and second contracts and first playoff experience in 17 years for the organization. And then it started to dip. We kind of didn't meet expectations in 98. And then what happened in 99, and this is not getting defensive here, but this doesn't get talked about much, is... We were terrible in 99 when people had high expectations. And then I had gotten benched for the first time in my career. Uh, I had the second longest consecutive start streak to Brett Favre at the time. I think 70-something starts. And I get benched. And we don't play any better that next week. So then I get the job back. And we roll off five in a row. And we're rolling. Now the defense is getting healthy. They're playing buck defense in 99. Offensively, we've gone from a buck ball to a little bit more balanced attack. We're putting up 30 against Kansas City. You know, we're beating, you're getting after people. And I break my collarbone in uh, the King Dome in Seattle. And third-degree AC separation break my collarbone. And Sean King comes in and the defense is hitting stride and buck ball comes back. And Sean does a nice job doing it, doing what he can do as a rookie. And and I think what they, what they saw and what they told me was I was due a huge buyout at the end of year six, which would have bought year seven and eight. It would have put me yeah. in the top five highest paid players in the league, if I remember correctly. And they were just doing the math. And the economics of it was, yes, I was a good player at that point in my career. I was playing good, uh, but I wasn't worthy of a top five contract. And by not signing the two years, I become a free agent. And they had just drafted Sean King in the second round. And he had played well as a rookie and, and took us to the NFC Championship game. That's the Burt Emanuel catch-no-catch no catch game against, against the, the Rams. Rams. Yep. I, I actually am not bitter about that. I, I get it. I mean, and now that I'm running an organization, I get it. It's just a high school program, but it's more than a high school program. It's kind of like running a sure. group of five college program. Uh, I I get having to make hard decisions that benefit the entire organization. And I look at what... Uh, rich mckay and tony dungy had to do at that point and i probably would have made the same decision that economically it didn't make sense so there was not a lot of bitterness there was heartache for leaving tampa because yeah. i had fallen in love with it spent six years there my wife and i were entrenched in the community now you're lynches and saps and brooks and Dunns and brooks and duns so i did that uh barber music well done. yeah i can go on and on those are now your your family like we've been through yeah. the lowest of lows climb the mountain together. Like we've done life together. We we've, our wives have had babies with each other. We've done baby showers. We've done little kids birthday parties. We've lived life together. And now you leave that part of it. That's what I remember. I remember the going away party they threw me at old Memorial and my teammates were there. And, and there was a, it was a sob fest because I think everybody understood is probably best for the team. But it was hard because now those relationships were really, really deep. And and those connections were really, really strong. So that's what I remember about 99.
1: Can we just tell the Sean King story real quick? Which Can one? we just do that? Which one? Well, the one where, where you decided, okay, I understand. I think I should be playing, but they're going with Sean, so I'm going to be a good teammate. And you went through all these things, and you went through the process of... Back before you know the internet, nobody knew it. You video cutups. You you presented him a bunch of video cutups of the defenses that he would be playing, and you said, "Hey, just you know, I think I should be starting." But here, I'm going to give you this information because I think it'll help you. And his response to you was, "Yeah, yeah, you said it pretty much." I'd gone through back then. It was beta tapes,
0: so you had to take these beta yeah. tapes. You had to create cutups. You had to get the film guy to do it. I, I, arbitrarily, let's say eight to twelve hours of work prepping him. We're getting ready to play the Raiders in Oakland. It's going to be a hard road trip. Um, you know. So a lot of things I, I kind of knew as a veteran we're going to go into this thing, so I really wanted to prep him hard. And his response is no, I got this. Just snap the ball. I'll be good. Uh, I think he had four completions that day. They rushed for about 350 yards on us and ran <laughs> us out of the building. Uh, but uh, again, I, Sean was just a, what I was six years yeah. earlier. So, I mean, I, yeah. it's like looking in the mirror. You know, I'm six yeah. years into this thing. I'm Now I'm a vet. Now I'm a pro. Now I am a good leader. Now I'm a really hard worker, arguably one of the hardest workers on the team. And I'm looking in the mirror of a kid that was me six years earlier. So it was hard to be mad at him when all he was doing is responding to me, probably the same way I responded to Craig Erickson, who went out of his way when he was my mentor yeah. to try to get me ready for stuff. So it's – unfortunately, it's a natural progression – sometimes of young players I think that's going away because there's so much information out there for young players to look at on how to be a pro you can turn on Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever and watch the journeys of these future of these Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers and go oh I want to be like him as a rookie Uh, but there's still some laziness and narcissism and um, immaturity that happens early with guys in, in their NFL careers
1: I always love that story. No, man, I got this. I got this. I'll just just snap the ball, Uh, figure it out. Sure. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, Why don't we take a quick break here? And when we come back, we'll talk about the one year that really changed Trent Dilfer's football life. And then we'll get to everything else after football. Back after this. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Bourbon Time. Even if you don't have the traditional nine to five schedule, there's no denying that this past year has changed the way that work and rest intersect. Without a designated office to come home from, we're missing that natural break in our days. And our friends at Maker's Mark recognize this phenomenon and wanna help us out a little bit. Beat the burnout and start blocking off the hour of six to 7 p.m. as your me time when you do what you love for you and only you. For me, I like to sit back with a nice Drink of Maker's Mark over some ice. And what I love about Maker's Mark is it's so smooth. There's no bitterness. And it's silky. Kind of like all of Ron Burgundy's ties. It's fantastic. So let's make the idea of bourbon time a reality. Join me in reclaiming 6 to 7 p.m. as the happiest hour so you can do whatever it is that makes you happy. And if it involves a glass of bourbon, remember to drink Maker's Mark responsibly. Maker's Mark Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 45% alcohol by volume. Copyright 2021 Makers Mark Distillery Incorporated, Loretto, Kentucky. All right, back with my uh, longtime friend, Trent Dilfer. So the Tampa Bay experience had completed, and then you find yourself looking for work, and lo and behold, you find yourself a member of the Baltimore Ravens as a backup quarterback. Nope.
0: Really interesting. I told my players this the other day. We are talking about kind of the value of scout team and guys that haven't really earned a starting job yet and how important they are to your organization and I was telling them, it's it's my career arc is interesting as a quarterback. I was never a backup quarterback. I was never a scout team quarterback in my whole right. life. So high school, obviously, you're not. College, I wasn't because the year I would have been a scout team quarterback, I hurt my shoulder and redshirted. So then my next year, I'm the backup. So you don't take scout team reps as the backup. It's usually the third guy, right? So I was always sitting there watching the starter. And then I started half of my redshirt freshman year anyways. Then I go to Tampa and I'm never a Scout team guy because they're always trying to get me reps. And then I'm the starter for six years, or I'm hurt. So when I get to Baltimore, it's the first time I'm reading a card. And it was kind of a humbling experience when you're in your seventh year, you've been to Pro Bowl, you made a ton of money. Uh, now I'm a professional, so I have true professional mentality. I'm like, huh, I'm reading remember you know Brandon Stokely are sitting here in a huddle? Looking at a white piece of paper to run the play to help Ray Lewis and Rod Woodson and Dwayne Starks and these guys get better. Uh, and it was really that moment that I realized how important Guy 53 was on the roster because I was Guy yeah. 53. You know, Stoke and I would talk about we're Guy 53. It matters what we do yeah. every day.
1: Well, and actually, that's kind of funny because what happened at the end of that season, and we'll get to that in a minute, and a certain play uh, from that Super Bowl. But Okay, so you start as the backup, and the Ravens, to put it lightly, on offense were struggling. Like Tony yeah, Banks and it was a starter. Really started in camp. You know,
0: Tony Banks had played really well the end of '99, uh, wow. and Brian Billick was a highly aggressive offensive guy. So he wanted to push the ball down the field. He had just come from the Vikings, where in '98 they had historic numbers. They set gets, the record most yep. at that point, the most points in a single season. Yep. So then he gets the head job in 99 at Baltimore. By midseason, he starts seeing – he's got his speed. He's brought in Patrick Johnson. Uh, he's got his quarterback, Tony Banks, who's a really good deep ball thrower. And he thinks he's going to recreate the 98 Minnesota Vikings. So Banks plays really good then in 98. We get to uh, 99, sorry. So we get to training camp, and it's just balls, deep ball, deep ball, deep ball, deep ball. I mean, it's just every day in practice. It's how aggressive can we be offensively? And I'm coming from I'm a Tony Dungy, Monty Kiffin disciple, and I'm watching this thing, and I'm like, wait a second here. This is the best defense in football. I know that because I think Tampa was one or two in '99 team I just come back, I just left, and this defense is better. It's bigger. It's as fast. It's got a little more complexity in the scheme, and it's got a player every day in practice that I'm saying I've never seen anything like this. Not practicing against Warren Sapp and Derek Brooks, two Hall of Famers, but to feel Ray Lewis in the middle of a football field and what he did in the run game and the pass game, I'm like. And then Rod Woodson, who's a Hall of Famer, is playing safety nickel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're, you have Christmas Callister and Dwayne Starks at the corners who are locked down guys that are hard to get open against you have sarah goose and sam adams inside uh two of the biggest presences in all football i'm like this is the best defense in football why are we taking so much risk so i remember thinking to myself it's not gonna be long before i'm the starter here uh, It might yeah. be week one it might be me- week three might be week five but i know how to play football tony banks knows how to throw the ball down the football field and that's not a knock on tony but he just hadn't right. learned how to play quarterback yet he had learned how to play throw and yeah. what happened early in that season was it was it was either hot or cold. Tony was either on fire, throwing for five touchdowns, or it was a disaster. And that's where this game manager kind of mentality of mine took over was, if I get a chance here, the last thing I'm going to do is ever put this defense in a bad position. Because I yeah. saw in Tampa, we won a lot of games by just not putting them in a bad position, being good in the kicking game, and being efficient offensively. And and really what game manager is, and by the way, I don't want any quarterbacks to be game managers, but it's what I had to do at that point of my career was you only have to capitalize on three drives a game. Right. Like you're going to get a couple short fields, get a couple first downs, there's your field goals. And you're going to have three drives a game that you have to convert multiple third downs, move the ball, punch it in in the tight red zone. But you're not trying to score touchdowns every single time you get the ball. You're trying to start one of those three drives. And if momentum and efficiency allows that to happen, you're going to finish those drives. And it was almost like I was a scientist sitting in the back going, huh, this and that and this and this equals this, which is going to be right. a trophy. And I was not wrong. You know, I'll, I'll say that. No. Is that I wasn't wrong about one thing. And that was when I took over that we weren't going to – we were going to – had the odds were we are going to win the football game. Like if you're a betting yeah. man and you started the game – We're not going to do a lot to beat ourselves. And it ended up working
1: out. Yeah, just so people understand, in the middle of that season, the Ravens went five straight weeks in the NFL without an offensive touchdown. Five weeks in Uh a row without an offensive touchdown, and you won two of those games. That's how good that defense was. Like That's an impossibility in today's NFL because of the way the game is legislated and officiated and what they allow people to do now to defenses. But the idea of not scoring a touchdown for five straight weeks and not going zero and five is almost inconceivable. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and we
1: didn't get blown out at any of them.
0: You know, I mean, None every game them. we were in uh, Pittsburgh. I was only part of one of those no touchdown games. That was my first start at home against the That's Steelers. That's when you came in. Yeah, and if I would have hit Kadri Ismail on a crossing route, I, I it was probably right here on a crossing route and. Bad throw. He shouldn't have made the catch. But, you know, if we make that play, we win that game without even playing well offensively. So, uh, yeah, we were – I remember when we kind of popped the cork from the bottle against Cincinnati. I think we scored 30 that game. The first touchdown was a little whip route to Brandon Stokely. Uh, It was, okay, aha moment. We can actually score touchdowns. And actually we got pretty hot offensively there. I want to say we – let's say 10 – maybe 10 through 14, 15. We actually played pretty well offensively.
1: So you get on a hot streak, you get into the playoffs, and boom, you find yourself winning games. One big play a game basically gets it done, mm-hmm. including that touchdown uh, to Shannon uh, in, in, the, in the playoff game against the Raiders, I think it was. Um, and, and you find yourself in the Super Bowl against the New York Giants. And you know, the, the teams that have the record in Super Bowl history, for the fewest points allowed, were the Cowboys in Super Bowl six. They gave up three to the Miami Dolphins, uh, and the Rams in uh, the Patriots against the Rams in Super Bowl fifty-three. They only gave up three, but in reality, that record belongs to the Baltimore Ravens defense in Super Bowl thirty-five because the only touchdown that the Giants scored in that game was a kick return on special teams. The defense pitched a shutout in that game.
0: More than just a shutout. It was ta- and again it was a I, domination. It was domination.
1: It, it was yeah. it was literally
0: uh it wasn't fair. Uh,
1: and they knew <laughs> it. It wasn't a fair fight. you it was like ti- it was like playing tiger when he was at his best. You knew the outcome, you just had to go through the process.
0: And they felt it. And those are some great coaches. The late Coach Fossil, obviously. Um John Fox was the defense coordinator, Sean Payton was the, the offensive coordinator. They had a lot of really good players. I just think it was, they hit a perfect storm. Uh, When we, by the time we got to Tampa for the Super Bowl, that game was over. Uh, It was almost, we were playing, we played a lot of ping pong that week. Our guys actually handled the week really well. Uh, That team was famous for having some fun off the field, uh, but we controlled how much fun we had off the field that week. We really stayed in house and hung out with one another for the most part. And, you know, the running joke in as we were getting ready for that game was, Not if, it was how many. Uh, And they knew, they kind of knew the schemes. They kind of felt confident with what the Giants would throw at them. Uh, Rod Woodson, I give him a ton of credit. You know, his coaching hat was also on as a secondary player. So he kind of was calling audibles in the back half of the defense based on how they lined up. We knew they couldn't run the ball just because our two inside guys and our guys set in the edge. so. They, we knew they had to throw it 40, 50 times to, to keep the game going like the Jets had done to us in Week 17. The Jets had thrown it all over the yard against us, so we felt like that might be a thing that the Giants tried to do. But offensively, we knew run the ball. If we had 30 carries in the game, we had a couple big plays. We knew we could take advantage of some of their secondary players, uh, that, it was, that, that the, the cat was in the bag, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and you hit Stokely early on for a touchdown in that game. And again, as you said, that game was in Tampa. So mm-hmm. for you personally, oh. for a guy who, as you said, was booed at an outback on Dale Mabry mm-hmm. to come back on a different team to that city and lead the effort of a thirty-four to seven win over the uh, over the Giants in Super Bowl thirty-five to you personally, what did that mean?
0: It was huge. I, I was so. Uh, Was it Ginorma Huge? It was Ginorma Huge. Ginorma Huge. A word me and you created on uh, (laughs) prime time. Prime time. (laughs) uh, It was really cathartic for me because I was now a 180 degree different human being. Uh, And I could have gone back and rubbed it in their face. And instead I went back and showed grace and humility and appreciation for my time there. I think I actually became more of a... Uh, I think the fan base embraced me more as a Raven than as a Buck, because of how I handled coming back. I know the media did. You know, some yep. of those media members and I had really uh, ornery relationships in my time in Tampa. How I handled that when I came back. Some of those guys are dear friends now. Uh, some of those guys now in my what am I my fourth career now. I uh, I spend time with. I go out of my way to help them out on on stuff and uh, really become grown to respect them and they've grown to respect me more uh, because of how I re-entered that situation. And uh, it was good for me too, because I didn't have any of that extra noise anymore. All the noise that bothered me in 94, 95, 96, uh, that noise now was gone. So I was just very focused on the task at hand and and didn't have any of that stuff inside of me that needed to come out. And I didn't have the insecurity. You want to make it super simple, I was no longer an insecure child uh and handled it as such and I think that helped me play better I didn't play great in that game but I played I played well enough when it mattered to 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 do what we needed to do
1: well as you always told me quarterbacks are paid to win on third down yep. at the end of the half and at the end of the game in two minute drills and in the red zone and, and yep. you you did plenty of that in that game so but it was a one and done for you in Baltimore you, you did this wonderful thing and then they decided to move on they bring in Kerr back the next year and that didn't quite work out, but that's another story. And you find yourself in Seattle yeah. where two things happen. You become friends with someone you never thought you were going to become friends with. Uh-huh. And that person helped you through probably the worst experience of your life, which was the death of your son, Trevin.
0: Yeah, and I don't want, uh, I'll talk about anything. You know me, and I'll talk about it here. I don't want to take too much time. Matthew and I, you know, Matthew was traded. Matthew Hasselbeck was traded from Green Bay to Seattle to be the guy. I was not yet a free agent. Uh, so he'd already been traded, and I become a free agent when Baltimore decides not to re-sign me. So now I'm looking around at different teams to play for, and I've always admired Holmgren. You know, he's a, he's a, he grew up where I grew up. Uh, he's kind of a legend in our part, so I'd always admired how he coached the quarterback, and I was willing to go there and take a chance. And I knew I felt like I had a pretty good chance of winning that job, like I did the one in Baltimore, if the kid had never played. And when I got there, Matthew, and all of a sudden he goes from being traded and being the guides, and now they're bringing in the Super Bowl quarterback to compete with them. And you can imagine the friction there. Sure. Uh, it, You know, I would say this, and he may tell it differently. I think sometimes we we both have a media voice, so we tell the same story with different perspectives. I liked Matthew a lot. Uh, we really liked Sarah, his wife. Uh, Sarah and my wife, Cass, hit it off early on. But Matt, I was the big bad wolf to Matthew. You know, I was threatening yeah. and I'm a bold personality too. So you sit in a meeting room long enough with somebody and, you know, we have very real conversations in there. And I was real with Matthew. I, I tried to be a truth teller in his life. And so sometimes the conversations went like this, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Shut up and listen. Basically I was giving myself advice from eight years earlier to him uh, or no, that's not going to work. Or I don't care how far did it. You're not farve. And he was yeah. getting it from me and Jim Zorn and, I think, and again, he had some stuff he had to work through. Uh, but I think where I earned my trust with Matthew is my investment into his success. At that stage, I was like, you know, I can do both. I can pursue my best, and I can push him and help him get his best, and the best man will win. Uh, I went 4-0 and that year uh, as a relief pitcher. Uh, I don't think he won four games the whole year as the starter. Uh, but yet, through all that, we kept growing closer. Um, and then that offseason, they chose to, to give me a bunch of money and make me the starter. And he was now put in the backup role. And that's, I think, when he grew up the most. You know, I think he really yeah. um, grew the most as a man going through some hard stuff that he didn't think he had to go through. Well, that fast forward now, I tear my Achilles against the Cowboys in week nine. The game, Emmett, breaks the rushing record.
1: Breaks the record. yes, yeah, set yep. the record. yeah.
0: And I'm done. And even being hurt and on IR, I'm still going to the office and trying to help Matthew out, trying to pour into his career, uh, trying to help him save the season, yada, yada, yada. Well, that offseason, we all go our own ways. And in, a- in April, we take our family down to Disneyland in Southern California, and my son gets sick. And as he's sick, you can tell it's something more than just the flu. Uh, ironically, it's a virus, uh, and you know, I'll make this quick cause this is where I do get emotional. We end up, his heart stops when we get him back to, to Fresno where we're living in the off season. Uh, he has to be put on a virus, attacked his heart, killed 99% of his heart in a matter of a day. Uh, we had to put him on an ECMO unit, which is a heart lung bypass machine he ends up spending 40 days in Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford, and we eventually have to take him off life support. And he was five and a half. I go into deep depression, as you can imagine. The funeral was really neat. We had a celebration of life memorial service, and the, uh, Paul Allen rents a plane or charters a plane. The team comes down. Most of my teammates, coaches, were there. Matthew and Sarah really spearheaded that movement to come support us. But, you know, our lives, we're kind of in a fog. You lose your son, you don't have a sure, great yeah. recollection of how everything's going on. I kind of hit a deep depression. I i get up to, like, I want to say 268 pounds. I played around 240. Uh, I get to, like, 268 pounds. Don't get off the cu- couch much. Maybe go out and hit some golf balls in the afternoon. I'm trying to save my marriage, trying to save my family. And I get a call one night. It's from Matthew. And he says, hey, you need to come up to camp. Like, what are you talking about how can you tell me what I need to do you know I'm obviously in a dark place and he goes no you need to you need to get up here and I push back again and he said this line that I'll never forget he says you know you th- it's not because you need us we need you and we need you to be back to who you are and yet what I'm hearing from Cass and the kids is you're not who you are so you need to come back up here get yourself right so that you can be you for us and I was like Never thought of it that way. That now in year, what am I, in year A9, um, going through what I've gone through in my career, hopefully being a great teammate, uh, establishing great connections with my team in Seattle, uh, that they were hurting for me, yes, and we were hurting. But we also had, you know, football's a unique thing now. You, people say family, I say tribe. You know, you really exist to serve your tribe and they exist to serve you. And when a key part of it, me, isn't there, they felt the loss. And when I got up there, it was as therapeutic as anything. I still go to counseling to this day, but their greatest counseling was my coaches and teammates and how they poured into me when I went back up there. And then as I became myself again, I was able to give that back. And pour into them. And I would say it's 2003-2004. Although I didn't play very much football. And nobody really remembers those years for the Seahawks. It was 05 that they ended up making their run. Those are two of my favorite years of my career. Those are two of the most rewarding. We still have friends from that group. We raised our kids together. Uh, Some of my favorite memories are locker room stories from those two years. Uh, But I think a lot of that I owe to Matthew. And the boldness he had to make that phone call that night.
1: Well, my, my favorite thing about that story is that when you guys first got together, you were the one that told him the things he didn't want to hear. And at the worst point in your life, he was the one that told you the thing you needed to hear. Yep.
0: Yeah, it's gone full, sir. I don't know if you know this, but his son, Henry, who put on your radar as a future lacrosse and football yep. superstar, he's a better athlete than Matthew. He's like Matthew and Sarah combined. People forget Sarah was an All-American field hockey player in the Boston College Hall of Fame. Yep. Henry is a freak athlete and a great kid. Uh, they didn't have football last year, so he moved down to Tennessee to play for me. So I got to coach Matthew's son after all these years. So uh, the Hasselbacks and Dolphers are still really close and um, follow the girls. You know, both the girls are at Boston College killing it. Annabelle and just great. won a yeah. national championship in lacrosse. Mallory's going there next year. Uh, I think what you said there that and this is a lesson in all relationships in a fractured country right now is like sometimes you got to hear what you don't want to hear and you got to have the grace and empathy for the other side to to dive in and connect and get through some tough stuff and Matthew and I have gotten through a lot of tough stuff in our in our
1: relationship and uh, we're both better off because of it now that bond is still there Um, so why don't we take our second break here when we come back we'll talk about a what we did together and what you're doing now, which is probably the most, uh, the coolest thing that I can think of for someone <laughs> like yourself. We'll be back with Trent Delphi right after this. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Starbucks Triple Shot Energy Extra Strength Coffee Beverage in a Can. That's Starbucks coffee that you love, ready to drink, offered in classic flavors, and now in zero sugar. They have four core flavors, vanilla, dark roast, cafe mocha, and caramel, and now also offering two zero-sugar flavors, black and vanilla. Both are zero-sugar and dairy-free. What gives you your energy? Find your Starbucks triple-shot energy online or at your local store. All right, back with Trent Dilfer. So I gotta say, the first time I met you, and you may not remember this, was it was Super Bowl 40 uh, in Detroit, where the Seahawks, the team that you had just left, uh, and made it all the way to play the Pittsburgh Steelers. And in a shocking turn of events, I was at a bar uh, in, a, in the hotel at the Wren Center. Schlerth and I were there having a drink. And lo and behold, you and Jim Kelly come traipsing into the bar. And NFL Live had started in 2003. So this would have been after the third season of NFL Live, 2003, 2004, 2005. And, you know, we thought we were doing okay, and we thought the show was all right. And I told this same story when Jim was on the show. But you guys came up to Stink and I, and you guys were like, man, we love your show because you guys talk about football the way we as football players talked about football. And for a guy who was a terrible football player but always wanted to be a really good football player, that was like the greatest thing in the world you could have ever said to me. And it was the first time I realized, man, we might be doing something good here. Oh Yes, you
0: were. And I was there because I was doing kind of some – Uh, I don't know, work for NFL Network. I knew I was at the end of my career, and uh, they wanted me to do some stuff in the playoffs. and uh, So I was doing some stuff for them, and that's why I was there kind of wearing a media hat. And uh, I remember now that I had kind of seen what it looked like a little bit, I'm like, they're awesome at what they do. I tell people all the time, Trey, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly to you, but uh, what I ended up doing, nine or ten years in TV – I yeah. learned everything from Rich Eisen, uh, you, and then admired Stink, tried to copy Stink. So I didn't work yeah. a ton with Stink, like because yeah. by the, you know, we didn't work a ton of shows together. And then I'd add Steve Levy to that too. But Rich kind of yeah. taught me what it looked like because I was still playing and I was doing some NFL right. network stuff. And Rich was great because he was a truth teller. Then I spent hours upon hours with you. And you corrected me all the time. You affirmed the things (laughs) I did well. You corrected the things I didn't. And then you would turn me to stink and be like, watch how he does it because he's awesome at what he does. And I studied stink. And then Levy, the piece piece Levy added, which I remember you affirming one night, was Levy told me, hey, go back home when you're done with TV and listen to yourself with your back turned to the TV and then watch yourself with the sound off. And yep. you rem- I remember you telling me late one Sunday night, about one in the mornings, we're getting to tape the last segment for primetime. You're like, man, you've gotten better the last few weeks. And I'd gotten better because now I'm using a work ethic that I didn't have early in my career. And I was actually going home and I was watching our segments the way Levy told me. And all of a sudden I wasn't running words together. My eyes weren't looking all over the place. I wasn't looking at the wrong camera. Uh, I was slower with my pace. Uh, doing the things, the TV things. And and I tell people all the time that, you know, I owe you guys so much, but really the greatest influence is you because I spend so much time with you.
1: Yeah, look, we had a blast. And I got to say, one of the reasons I was so happy to have you on the the pod was just to tell this story. And I, you, I, I think you remember this. There was one episode of NFL Primetime we were taping, and you, like – Men of our age had forgotten to make sure you take care of business before the show. <laughs> you you had failed to make sure the bladder was empty before the show began. And about halfway through the 90-minute show, you're looking at me like, I have to pee so bad. Oh. And we couldn't do it because there wasn't enough time at a commercial break. And then we get to a Chargers highlight, and yeah, I, because I I'm a sadist, I just this. decided... I'm gonna lead into this, and it was yep. like because I knew you had to piece open. Like oh. Philip Rivers streaming the offense to yep. the Chargers. Trent, look at that running back leak out of the backfield. Yep. What a torrent of great throws for <laughs> Philip Rivers. What well, was just gushing full of offense, and you are like doubling over, pounding the set. You're trying to put your squeeze your knees together, just waiting to get to the end so you could take a leak.
0: Oh, I was dying, and I and I remember. <laughs> I vividly remember that. I could walk into that studio right now. I could probably tell you what suit I had on. And I just remember being in the bathroom going, how did he read that highlight like that? Like, you completely pivoted. Because I'm an idiot. Because I'm an idiot. And just tortured me for a three and a half minute highlight. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There are so many stories that came out of doing that show. Those, oh, my gosh. Those, Those late night Sunday nights were. Yeah, uh, Or Monday nights, I'm sorry. Those late Monday, Monday nights, nights yeah. were incredible. How late we'd have to be there waiting for the final game and then taping the last segment. And uh, A lot of good memories.
1: Uh, and the, the other thing which I always love is when you were on Sunday Countdown, you, you made the point, and it was so simple, you just put the words in the wrong order. You were basically oh, yeah. trying to say more games are lost yes. than won, which is absolutely true, and it's the Bill Belichick mantra, let's not lose the game, let them lose it, and then we'll win it. But it came out. You cannot lose a game and still win it. And you can't lose like,
0: games in NFL and win them. And win them. Yeah, yeah.
1: I uh, I get it about
0: once a week on Twitter. So <laughs> once a week, somebody reminds me, and I always try to. I don't respond a ton on Twitter, but I always try to respond yeah. my best work. Like, uh, yeah,
1: exactly. Like Oh my God! But you, yeah, but, but you were right. It just, it just came out the wrong way, but, but oh. I knew exactly what you were trying to say. <laughs> that was but more importantly, after that, and after you left ESPN, you really found your calling in what you're doing now with coaching Lipscomb Academy in Nashville and what you're doing with the Elite 11.
0: Yeah. And I felt it the last couple of years. On TV, And I, again, this is not to knock. I have so many great relationships with the people at ESPN. And it's a great career. Uh, met so many friends out of it. When my when players transition say, should I go do TV? I say, absolutely, yes. You should absolutely go down that. My last couple of years, I was like, for some reason, I just don't have the juice anymore. Like, I don't, I'm not enjoying it. And, and I don't, I want to do things that when I wake up in the morning, the hair on your arm stands up. Yep. And the hair on my arms wasn't standing up anymore. And, uh, and I had turned down some coaching opportunities while I was playing because I had girls and they were you know, chasing their own careers. And when, I, when we retired and went to Austin, I thought it was going to be golf, uh, dip my toe in the media, and be an entrepreneur. You know, I own a few right. businesses and uh, wanted to see if I had you know, that in me. And as I'm living in Austin, and I played 218 rounds of golf in 2018. Respect. Uh, Respect. And I, again, and I don't regret it. Great friends in Austin. Uh, enjoyed a lot of it. But it I just wasn't how I was wired. And I, I just felt like I was being called to something different. So I went home and told my wife, I'm like, hey, we're probably going to go to China and become missionaries. Because I'm going to say yes to whatever's next. And I end up. Fallen on this high school coaching job in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, it made sense because my youngest daughter had just committed to play college volleyball in Nashville. My wife and I were actually, we were this close. We were RV shopping. We were going to buy one of those souped-up, best-of-the-line giant RVs and take the football season and travel to SEC, NFL uh, cities and then go wow. watch, our, watch our daughters play volleyball. Uh, we had another thing. We were going to... Ch- try every beef jerky on our trip and like do a beef jerky (laughs) blog like that was our thing that's where we were going and uh i end up coming across this sleepy program in nashville tennessee they had won three games the two previous years i didn't care they had 38 kids in the program six lifted with a pvc pipe because they weren't strong enough to live with the bar i didn't care uh i just felt called that i need to do what i was wired to do and and I took a leap of faith. My family took a leap of faith. And uh, it's turned out really to be, a, to be one of the great joys of my life.
1: I, listen, I, I don't want to tug at the heartstrings too much, but how much of you doing and coaching young men is sort of easing the fact that you never got to coach your own son?
0: A ton. I mean, we, the motto, I'll move that there, but that, that was a team picture that the community gave me. And it says, pain repurposed into passion. And I think that's what this thing really is, is, is our pain repurposing of passion for a community and helping grow young men and, and getting a second chance of parenting boys. Uh, You've done it, Chappie. I mean, there's difference between parenting boys and girls, not better or worse. Just different, different. And I parented three girls. Uh, They're all in college. They're all ones married. And this is my chance, second chance to parent boys. And that's really what we do. You know, we have, uh, I'd have to ask Joey over, but he told me that I think hundred and something years of NFL college, NFL and college coaching or playing experience on our staff wow. and uh, here at Lipscomb. And I was talking to Phil Dawson the other day, who's my special teams coordinator, been one of my best friends forever, 21 years in the NFL. Uh, probably has Hall of Fame numbers, probably won't make the Hall of Fame, but if you look at his numbers, he has Hall of Fame numbers. And we were both sitting there going, all we're doing is parenting. They call us coach, but that's all we're really doing is parenting. We are doing everything in our power sacrificially to give them all the tools to go crush life in every area. And the more we do that, guess what, the better the football is too. So you kind of get the win, on the football field by parenting them off the football field, and so selfishly, I get the benefit, I get the re- the benefits of both. I get I get to parent boys, and I get to see the fruits of that labor in uh, wins on the football field.
1: Side note: Dawson uh, is the cousin to one of my best friends from college, my roommate, uh, who also was named Trey. Go figure it out. Uh, but so there, there's another connection yeah. that I didn't know that you know. Uh, that we had and obviously you're doing great stuff with the elite 11 you've been doing that for years mm-hmm. and that's also a huge part of of what you're doing right because it's people always say well how can he do this to these elite quarterbacks listen there are people that know how to do it and there's people that know how to teach people how to do it and those are different things
0: that's one thing and also i then in a 10 years elite 11 not one of those elite 11 quarterbacks has ever heard hey do it this way because i did it this way <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> They yeah. hear the opposite. They hear, hey, yeah. let me tell you about all the mistakes I made so you can learn from my mistakes and not make them yourself. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to shy away from I think I can teach the game of football as well as anybody. I think I've I've researched the, the quarterback position as much as anybody and have the experiential research as well of playing it. And I did do some good things, so I know what the good things feel like. And I did some really bad things, and I know how to prevent those. Uh, I think being a teacher, uh, the Elite 11 has been really good for me because it's honed my teaching skills. Uh, any great coach, any great teacher has nine to 10 ways or nine to 12 ways of saying the same thing uh, a different way. So I, I think a lot of those things uh, have helped me get ready for what I'm doing here at Lipscomb. And and those relationships through Elite 11 have been phenomenal to have that connective tissue with guys that go on to have Hall of Fame careers and win multiple Super Bowls and uh, to know that you played a small little part. And we never say we play a big part. You know, in the Elite 11 community, we play a very small part in their journey, but it's a part that they end up leaning on for a long time. Uh, Their high school coach is usually their most influential person. Uh, Their high school offensive coordinator, maybe their quarterback coach. But uh, we try to come in there and fill any gaps that there are. And and be a resource to them as they go through their journeys. And I think that's why we we have the relationships with those guys that we do.
1: Trent, this has been awesome. And I'm so thrilled for the things you're doing. And I understand you're starting a new venture. You're coming and swimming in these waters, the pod world. Tell me about it.
0: I am. I'm actually launching a pod called beyond the X's and O's. And uh, we're going to talk about the quarterback journey. We're not going to get into the stories that the mainstream media does a really good job of telling we're going to try to let the quarterback tell the stuff that they don't, don't get to talk to the mainstream media about. Uh, questions like, you know, walk me through your first high school start and everything that went into that. And what was your girlfriend wearing that night? Because I know you remember. And what that first yeah. touchdown feel like? And, and let, give them a platform to talk about some of the stuff they're doing off the field. Uh, we're going to start with some gold jackets. So we'll start with the Aikmans and the Youngs and that group. And then we're going to get into this generation that I think may go down as one of the great